Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 20, and the expansion of settlers from the Cape is gaining pace. At the same time, the closer to the north are experiencing political upheavals, while further north, the Nguyen-speaking farmers have spread out into the Free State and Transvaal Highlands, now known as Gauteng. The decline of the Khoikhoi chiefs and the increasingly coercive nature of the trade took place at the same time as another major development in the Cape. This was the intensification of labour relations between the Khoi and the colony. Ever since Van Riebeck's time, some Khoi Khoi had worked in the colony as cooks, assistants, domestics, building labourers and dispatch runners, amongst other jobs. Europeans did not hire Khoi Khoi as herders or shepherds before 1670 because they feared the theft of their livestock, and then only under close supervision. However, the rapid expansion into Stellenbosch and Drakenstein we heard last episode meant the Dutch and Huguenot farmers needed more labour. There weren't enough slaves, so naturally as the Khoi lost their land and grazing rights, they took up more of these positions as workers. According to the census of 1690, there was one slave in the Bay Area of the Cape for every nine cattle tended and for every bushel of seed sown. Compare that to Drakenstein and Stellenbosch, where there was only one slave for every 63 cattle and 20 bushels of seed sown. The Khoikhoi were now experiencing a rapid decline in their wealth and security and responded in large numbers to the new farms and their requirements. Most came from the peninsula, although some did stay behind at the fort to make a meagre living they could, acting as porters for sailors and running errands for innkeepers and restaurateurs. Little is known about conditions of employment on these farms. At first, the Khoi would work seasonally almost like immigrant labor in the United States from Mexico, traveling from their homes for the harvest and planting. By 1695, some Khoi Khoi were in permanent employment on these farms, living there with their families and livestock, but in their own huts. By the turn of the century, they had entered a third stage of labour development. Some of the Khoi Khoi had now moved into the farmhouses themselves or the adjacent buildings. At first, they were herders and shepherds, but by 1700 had learned how to cultivate, harvest, prune vines and drive wagons. They could now do everything that slaves could do. In 1695, a farmer in Stellenbosch by the name of Johannes Willem de Grievenbroek wrote that the Khoi are apt in applying their hands to unfamiliar tasks. Thus they readily acquire the veterinary skill to cure scab in sheep, and they make faithful and efficient herds, said the impressed Dutch farmer. They train oxen for use in ploughing. Remember, the Khoi had a remarkable ability when it came to training oxen, using them in warfare, as I explained. It was a skill handed down through the ages. They are found exceedingly quick as inspanning or outspanning or guiding a team. Some of them are very accomplished riders and have learned to break horses and master them. Again, the Khoi had a tradition of riding oxen, so this was no surprise. They make trusty bearers, porters, carriers, postboys or couriers. They chop wood, mine the fire, work in the kitchen, prune vines, gather grapes or work in the wine press industriously. Without relaxation, they plough, sow and harrow. So the first signs in this relationship were not all bad. However, the wages of these men and women were not uniform nor regulated by the Cape government. Unfortunately, the main attraction for the Khoi on a farm was a regular supply of tobacco and alcohol. On the plus side, there was also access to milk, bread and vegetables, as well as increased security against drought, wild animals and clan warfare. They were also often paid with a small number of calves or lambs, which meant part of their way of life could be continued in a somewhat limited way. 
As more koi arrived on farms, it became necessary to assimilate them into the colony's legal system. The most decisive steps were taken starting in 1671. Before then, the koi were regarded as members of independent tribes and the Dutch had stayed out of local politics, as you remember. By 1672, the VOC Council of Justice passed judgment in two cases involving the Khoi, thus establishing their jurisdiction over the peninsula and southern Cape and all the people living there, based on two principles. The first, all Khoi working for the Dutch were now subject to these judgments, while independent Khoi still living in the region would be called to the court when anything they did had an effect on the farmers. These were usually robberies, assaults or murders of Khoi by the Dutch, or vice versa. In general, and something that's not well known, the Khoi were fairly well treated by the courts except in one respect. That was murder. If a Khoi killed a European, he or she would be executed. Whereas if a European killed a Khoi, they would be sentenced to prison terms and have their property confiscated. Most disputes never reached any court. The dispensing of justice was arbitrary when it came to farms isolated and dotted across the Southern Cape. Most were settled informally by executive action, and no documentation was kept, so the overall treatment of these labourers is still debated. Ironically, the trigger for this dependency was the VOC itself, and not the settlers at first. It was the company which consumed large numbers of koi koi cattle, and then subordinated and ultimately humiliated their chiefs. They assimilated the koi into the Cape legal system, and instigated through Simon van der Stel the expansion of the colony into koi koi pastures. Only at the last stage in early 1700, did the Freeburgers' role become more decisive in providing employment for impoverished Khoi. At the same time, this wasn't a policy of genocide. The VOC did not set out to exterminate the Khoi in the same way that the Americans set out to destroy the Plains Indians or the Australians set out to destroy Aborigines. It was a steady attrition of their lives with times of aggression against Gonema and class, for example, in the Second Khoi War. As I've explained, this would change later, in the third quarter of the 1700s in particular, when the Dutch farmers would begin to hunt down the sand like animals. By 1700, Khoi Khoi society was falling apart as the colonists' way of life began to threaten their traditions, particularly the ownership of livestock. Company direction had displaced them from their pastures and springs, while the Khoi of the Cape were also being pulled towards the farms. It wasn't an equal pressure. The European farmers deprived Khoi of good pastures, which they then used to cultivate or even to graze their own cattle and sheep. The koi were not ruined immediately, as long as they could move their livestock between the first farms and maintain some of their traditions. Only after a generation of Dutch and French farmers had settled across the Cape do we hear then of koi koi cattle becoming a menace, trampling the farmers' crops. At the same time, koi men and women who began working on the farms predated this period of a lack of access to all land, though there must have been some attraction to working on these farms. Obviously, there are many differences to this model. All I'm saying is that the Dutch didn't arrive with their muskets and start shooting locals and stealing their cattle. Later, however, their genocide committed against the sand was definitely a case of hunting down people, men, women and children, to exterminate them. As you're going to hear later, this was a horrifying period in South Africa's history. By 1700, the traditional way of life for the Khoi in the Cape had deteriorated alarmingly and the entire society was in danger. The Khoi Khoi economy based on land and cattle was what weakened them. Remember, they had no culture of farming and all pastoralists require vast areas of land, unlike farmers who need a few acres for subsistence. 
In later eras of South African history, whites and blacks would clash mainly over land, but in this early period, the bone of contention was mainly livestock. Trade with the VOC contributed in part to this loss of livestock. Between 1652 and 1699, 16,000 cattle and 36,600 sheep were purchased from the Khoi, at least in the official records. It's thought that the number was much higher, but the Khoi had hundreds of thousands of head of cattle in the Cape at any one time, and the number purchased was a small percentage of the total spread over half a century. Thus, the company purchases accounts for only part of the decline, as Richard Elphick and Herman Gillamy point out in their seminal work, The Shaping of Southern African Society, 1652-1820. Faced with a reduced security and disintegrating economy, the Koi Koi gravitated to the colonists' farms. You must also appreciate that this action and response was not alien to their traditions. It had long been customary for the Khoi who had lost stock to herd for a wealthier kinsman or neighbor and thus restart their own herds. However, most Khoi who entered the farms never left. They became dependent on the perks like alcohol and tobacco, along with free food and lodging, while the few cattle and sheep they received as payment were not enough to create an entire herd big enough to sustain an extended family. A second large group of Khoi decided to trek further inland instead of becoming the serfs and farm labourers of the Dutch farmers. This exacerbated the destruction of the Khoi in the Cape still further as the Khoi spread out instead of concentrating their power and delayed the final showdown with the growing European power in South Africa by around 100 years. That will become evident in future podcasts. By 1700, all the independent Khoi Khoi near the colony, the peninsulas, the Tsarigutra, had no visible leadership at all above the clan level. The major chiefs that existed when Van Riebeck arrived had now disappeared. In the southeastern Cape, the majority of these clans were tiny and their flocks diminished, the political superstructure so feeble that by end of 1710 the traditional order had disintegrated beyond recall. Another matter was raising its head. Even at this early period of South African history, a division had developed between the views of the European or Batavian-based officials and the new colonists. The settlers were constantly aware of the fragility and dangers of their position on the tip of a strange and frightening continent. The VOC had reinforced the messages of treating the Khoi fairly, whereas the colonists began to demand tougher action. The Dutch official van der Riede, whom we met last episode, wrote a scathing note to the colonists about the children of slaves, and by 1700, three quarters of these children had white farmers. These poor men who are bound not only for all their lives, but for those of their children. He said the children of slaves, dusky-skinned, blonde-haired, and sometimes even blue-eyed, should receive the same education as other children, and then be set free upon reaching adulthood. The colonists balked completely at this message, and at that point they were joined by the Cape Dutch clergy, who appeared to turn their backs on their biblical teachings and wholeheartedly supported the Freeburgers. And these Freeburgers wanted their own flesh and blood, who happened to have been born of a slave woman, to remain slaves. Van Riedo went further and said something which only began to be fully realized in 1994 at the time of South Africa's democracy. This was an amazing moment. So many things would have been different had his social comments become the norm. And van Riede said way back in the 1670s that the whole country should become mixed race to which the land was eminently fitted. 
This would lead to the most rapid form of development, both economically and socially. He warned that unless this was the manner of the future, then blacks would end up squeezed into the worst condition, while whites would enjoy the fruits of the land, but would ultimately pay a terrible price. By mixing European and African culture, he said, would cause the Khoi and others to emerge from barbarism, at least in his mind, and into a jointly successful country. What will foreign nations say to our shame if we allow them to live together by hundreds like brutes in utter licentiousness and not provide as for our own countrymen? Given the passage of time, that was pretty much a summary of the world's attitude towards 20th century South African government's policy of apartheid. And so the pattern began where the white Dutch descendants would try to retain what they saw as their racial purity by excluding all others socially, whereas the reality is many were already part black within 50 years of Van Riebeek's arrival. As by way of a small explanation, the infamous far-right leader Andries Trinich railed against race integration in the 1970s, but then Afrikaans newspapers discovered he had black ancestors. So much for racial purity, if such a thing exists. In history, we have moments where people reach a fork in the road. In 1700, the Dutch male burghers decided that any form of freedom for their own children who they'd created in moments of passion with black slave women would be rejected. So these children, many born of rape, would become embittered, and this bitterness still seeps through the veins of modern South African politics. Meanwhile, Governor Simon van der Stel had tired of the role that one of the local Khoi leaders had played for the last 10 years, the man known as Klaas, whose name was actually Dora. He had acted as an agent trading with more distant tribes. Suddenly, and without any good reason, van der Stel ordered that Dora's herds be confiscated and decided that the continuous negotiation through a Khoi middleman be changed to a more direct control over all trade. Dora ended up in prison. The governor had signaled to many in the Cape that the previous period of treating the Khoi with some respect had now changed forever. And doing so, Simon van der Stel retired to his splendid estate of Constantia in 1699, handing over the dynasty he'd forged to his son, William Adrian van der Stel. Unfortunately, while the younger van der Stel had some of his father's qualities in terms of high energy and ideas, he did not have the senior man's administrative strength. His upbringing in the Cape had helped reinforce a few very bad habits, and the main issue was corruption. The VOC itself was a deeply corrupt company, which is symbolic as the first example of what turned into modern capitalism. The moral tone of the VOC was thoroughly rotten. The power of officials in their own spheres of interest in India, Java, Indonesia and South Africa was almost unchecked. By 1685, Inquiries had shown that the Admiralty officials allowed whole cargoes to be smuggled into the Netherlands because the smugglers were their friends. Cape VOC salaries were small, but the higher officials had substantial allowances, and all officials were allowed various fees and a limited private trade in crockery, linen, calico, and other eastern products. Ships were searched upon arrival in the Cape because the habit had developed of captains anchoring just out of sight and trading with the officials in secret. So Willem Adrian van der Stel spotted a great business opportunity when he saw one and took steps which eventually would see him fired from his position. He embarked on large-scale agriculture himself in defiance of the law and proceeded to corner the supply in the small Cape market and then regulated that same trade. Watching this were the free burghers, 
who'd stopped trusting VOC officials virtually the day they became Freeburgers. William Adrian had been eyeing the best land and called in ordinary commissioner Wouter Valkenier and demanded he be granted the considerable farm at Vergelegen, just below the Hottentots Holland mountain pass. Other farms were parceled out to other VOC officials, like the Secunda, the Fiscal, the Captain, and the Predacant or Priest, and even the Land Surveyor. Then, because he was a good son, he gave his father Simon the entire southern half of the Cape Peninsula as a cattle ranch. He gave his brother Franz a large farm also at Vergelegen, and by the time he had finished with his Idiamin-type unilateral self-empowerment, VOC officials owned one-third of the entire farm area of the Cape. As we'll hear next episode, Adrian's corruption had not ended. More was to come before he'd be recalled in disgrace. But that's for next week. Please rate the podcast on iTunes to help raise its visibility. And if you want to contact me directly, you can do so via my website, desmondlatham.blog, or through Twitter. My handle is at deslatham. Until next, salagatli okay.